Well, thank you, Todd, for that kind introduction. Um, it is always exciting to be at a generous giving celebration. And uh, it's just a real privilege for us to be up here tonight to share with you. And yet, after we accepted the invitation, we really got a little bit nervous because it's, it's always uncomfortable talking about yourself and it's even more uncomfortable when you're talking about giving and generosity. And uh, um, it, we really can't share our story without talking about us. <laughs> but, but our hope for you tonight as you listen is that you won't focus on us, but that you'll focus on our story. And particularly that you'll focus on God's hand in our story as you see it woven through uh, our life together. Sue and I met a little over 28 years ago. Uh, this is a second marriage for us. We met on the streets of Naples, Florida. And as Sue began to share her story with me and, and the pain and the difficulties that she had experienced, from where I came from, I would have expected to have found a bitter and resentful person. But I didn't. I found a person full of joy. And that didn't make sense to me. And I knew that whatever it was that she had, I wanted. And as we began to get to know each other, she shared with me that at the age of 12, she had gone forward in a Southern Baptist church and accepted Jesus as her Savior. And then at the age of 29, in the midst of an abusive marriage, she made him her Lord. I'd gone to church all my life, and I'd never done either one of those things. And so, shortly after that, I made two really important decisions probably the two most important decisions in my life. The first was I asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. And about six months later, I asked Sue to spend the rest of her life with me. And I knew it was true love because she agreed to move from Naples, Florida to Grand Rapids, Michigan. <laughs> we have four children, all from our previous marriages, and we have eight grandchildren. Well, not much changed for me uh, in the early years of our marriage. Uh, I continued to chase the American dream. I'm a type A. I'm driven. I worked hard and long hours because that's what you do to be successful in America. If you do that, money seems to follow. And money buys things and creates security. We gave, but we were wondering whether we were supposed to tithe from our gross income or our net income. <laughs> and we were building a net worth, which is the measure of success in the American dream. Investing our excess cash and building bigger homes. One of the first things we did after we got married was to build a big, beautiful home on Lake Michigan. And at, at, uh, at that time, we were also building a big new home in the suburbs of Grand Rapids. And about 20 years ago, I made the mistake of accepting a friend's offer to go to Russia with him. 
and it changed their lives. When Bruce got back from Russia, um, two of young women that he met there came to visit us. One was Rita and Olga, and they spoke great English, and um, I was stuck with them. Uh, what was I going to do? Two Russian girls, and the kids were in school, and Bruce is working. and So they went and did what I do. And we went out to check on the house at the lake. We planted the flowers. We went to see the landscaper to plan out how to make the five acres beautiful. And we went shopping and did all the things that we as American women do. And uh, one thing I did was take uh, the girls to buy a Bible. And Rita picked up one for $5.95. And I picked up one for $79.95. And Rita says, are the words the same? <laughs> well, Rita was much more concerned about what was on the inside I was concerned with what was on the outside. Then she shared with me, my mom is kind of like you Americans. She had one dress all her life. I bought her a second one. Now she wants a third. And so when Rita and Olga got ready to leave, I asked them if it was going to be hard for them to go back because this was the early 90s. And there wasn't much on the shelves. Bruce had told me there they were still waiting in line for food. And she said, I said to Rita, um, is it going to be hard to go back? She said, oh, I never want to be like you Americans. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, you spend all your time taking care of your things. And I didn't understand. I had no idea what she was talking about. But when she left... Bruce and I talked about it, and I said, Bruce, I think we believed a lie. I think the American dream isn't really what God had planned for all of us. Maybe he gave us all of this to share, not to consume. Then we had the fortune of going to Russia two years later and got to stay in Rita's home, and we went with Young Life, and we hung out with college students there. And it was there that, for the first time, I experienced freedom from materialism and social pressures. I gave Lena, a beautiful blonde girl, one of my outfits, one of my favorites. It was pink top and a pink and white check bottom, and she came out the next day with a pink top, but the skirt was black with red flowers. Now, here, we would have thought, she's either colorblind or something's terribly wrong. But there, no one noticed. Clothes were only to cover the body. Again, not concerned with the outside, only the inside. So I think we later looked at our checkbook and our calendar and we realized where our treasure and our hearts really were. So as we thought, as we thought about Rita's statement, um, it really got to us. And we felt that God was really calling us to, to simplify our life. Little did I expect that he was going to start with our home on Lake Michigan. Um, it was my dream home. But we really felt that God was saying, is that yours or mine? I want you to hold it loosely. And I think we hoped that maybe he was just testing us. And so we prayed about it, and we put a price on the house that was really high. And we said, okay, 
if someone comes along and offers us that price, then we'll know that God wants us to let go of it. And I think we felt pretty safe. And about two weeks later, a couple called and said, I understand you might consider selling your house on the lake. And we said, well, we're talking about it. And well, they wanted to come and see it. So they came out and we showed them all through the house, walked the property with them. And when we were all done, they said, well, what are you asking for the house? And so we kind of told them the story that we really didn't want to sell it, but that we really felt God was calling it to hold in our hand loosely. And we gave him the price. And he said, sounds good to me. (laughs) And we kind of looked at each other, and after they left, we said, I think we just sold the house. (laughs) And it was shortly after that that we went on a retreat, and I heard a man say, what God needs is people who are available to love others. And I'd never thought about the word available before. I was a driven businessman. and and didn't have time for things that weren't on my agenda. But as the thought wouldn't go away, really began to wrestle with, is this really what I'm supposed to be doing? I was in the construction business. It's an intense business. We looked at our financial statement and said, you know, we don't have a lot, but I think we've got enough to make it so that I didn't feel like I had to work anymore. And as God worked on our hearts, he really led us to close that business and just say, okay, Lord, I'm available. And the other thing he said, which was really hard for me, was he said, I don't want you to make a plan. I just want you to listen to me and see what I bring in front of you. Now, if there are any of you out there who are type A's, you know that not having a plan is not an easy thing to do. So the journey was hard but the results were spectacular. Well, over the last years before that, we had spent a lot of time with college students. And um, Bruce promised me we'd go back to Florida, so we bought a condo in Florida. And even though we were hosting college students and we were working with Calvin College in Grand Rapids, and we had an idea uh, to open up a home in Grand Rapids in the inner city where college students would live in intentional Christian community with mentors. And so as we're preparing to go down to Florida for the winter, and our last child is getting ready to graduate that spring, we bought this place, and she leaves home, and I'm sitting in the kitchen, and I had been doing a Bible study on obedience, and I asked God, what is it you want me to do? with my life ahead of me. I've got this home. What is it I'm to do? And what he said to me was, what are you passionate about? And my answer was, well, I love college students. I love having them in my home. And it was like, you want us to move in with those college students in the inner city? And I got excited, which was really unusual because being a parent had been very difficult for us. So when Bruce came home that night, I said, Bruce, have you thought about us moving into the city, into that house with the kids? And he said, well, actually, I have. So we applied for the job. (laughs) We were the only ones that applied. (laughs) And we got the job. So in January of 1998, with a new place in Florida, we move into the inner city with nine college students. 
we had no idea what we were in for. It was the hardest thing we had ever done, but it revealed our hearts, it changed our hearts, it changed our lives forever. We would go to bed sometimes and we'd lay there and we'd say, we're happier here than we've ever been in any home. There is nothing we could buy that could bring the joy that seeing these kids' lives change because they are learning to love one another the way Jesus loves us. We learn to resolve conflict together, to speak the truth in love. And I think for the first time, I experienced unconditional love. Well, we stayed there. We told them we'd be there for 18 months. We stayed two and a half years. Today, there are six houses in Grand Rapids with mentors living with college students, and hundreds have gone through the program. But at that point was, now what do we do? We're two and a half years out. Our lives have been changed. They will never be the same. So we ended up deciding to sell the home out in the suburbs. We thought that was a backward move for us, and moving forward would be to stay in the neighborhood. The fun thing was when we found a little house in the city, uh, Bruce's son, Mike, was with us, and Mike said, I feel like I'm the parent you're the child, and we're going to look at your first home. But he looked at his dad, and he said, Dad, thanks. You took the pressure off me. I don't have to do, accomplish what you did. It was huge. So God was teaching us to let go of big things, and he was teaching us to let go of little things. He was teaching us that he was in control. And we were slowly learning that it all belongs to him. I think for some time we had considered everything to be a blessing from God, but we held on to the ownership. And as we said those words, it all belongs to him, we realized those are pretty easy words to say. But boy, are they hard words to live out. But as a result, we began to ask different questions. Instead of asking how much should we give to God, we began asking how much should we take for ourselves. We became more generous with our money. In fact, our giving increased exponentially. But we were still holding on to the things, the stuff that God allowed us to keep in a pretty tight fist. So God started messing with us about that. You know, he said, that home in Florida, you guys are only there two, three months a year. You know, that home in Michigan, you got a couple extra bedrooms. You know, that car sits in your garage when you're down in Florida. And then we heard him ask this question. If they're really mine, how can I use them if they're sitting empty? And that was a haunting question. And everything about us wanted to say, well, yeah, Lord, we know they're yours, but just leave them for just us, please. We don't want to share this stuff. But we kept hearing him ask that question. If they really mine, how can I use them if they're sitting empty? Well, we began to offer our home in Florida to others. And uh, last year, it was out of the time it was being used, it was used 70% by other people other than ourselves, sometimes people we've never met. And it has brought such joy. And after living with college students, we often have young people live with us. We have a girl right now living with us, another one moving in in May. 
We never know why God brings them to us, but by the time they leave, we know our lives have been changed, and so has theirs. Many of these young people get married. One year, we went to 22 weddings. <laughs> and then they have children, and they call you grandma and grandpa because they feel like they're part of your family. But is it hard? Oh, it's hard. In Florida, I have 12 place settings of silverware. There are only five spoons left. I don't know who eats the spoons, but they never leave a note. They never tell me they lost the spoon, but I go to get a spoon, and I go, where did the spoons go? Why can't people fold towels the way I do? Why do they leave crumbs under the kitchen table? Why? One girl put the placemats, the, the ones you wipe off, in the dishwasher. These things frustrate me terribly. So then I have to go and say, okay, God, you're the owner. We need to have a talk. And he'll say, have, you, have I given you enough to go buy some new spoons? Hmm. Have I given you good health? Can you refold those towels? Can you clean up after them? I clean up after you. And it all, all of a sudden, my heart changes. But I have to have that talk a lot because I'm pretty fussy. But it brings us joy. It truly does. We love having young people live with us. Some become like our children. Maybe one of the hardest conversations that I had with God had to do with my ex-wife. And it all started with a conversation that Sue overheard between our two daughter-in-laws who were concerned about what she was going to do when she retired. She was living in an apartment, didn't have a lot of resources, and they were concerned that she was going to have to come and live in with one of them. And Sue shared that with me. And she said to me, she said, you know, the decision that you made to get a divorce shouldn't become the responsibility of your children. Everything in me resisted that statement. I said, no, we settled that years ago. It's called a divorce settlement. I left her a lot of money, and the fact that she didn't use it wisely is not my problem anymore. That's her problem. But God wouldn't let go of me on it. And after a while, I felt like I heard him say, you know, you did settle that in the court of law, but you never settled it with me. You didn't even know me then. And so as I wrestled with that, we brought our children into the conversation. And ultimately, what we ended up doing was buying a home for my ex-wife. The kids told her about it. And her response was, I just felt like a weight was lifted off my shoulders. And we didn't know that weight was on her shoulders. But God did. And he nudged us in that direction. And then another little nudging came about two and a half years ago when we went to our first jog and we heard a story about a young man who had helped pay off one of his friend's student loans. And we had made a loan a couple years earlier to a young couple in Kentucky uh, who were really struggling. And as we spent some time with the Lord at the end of that jog, we felt he was saying to us, forgive that loan. And so when we got back to Grand Rapids, we took that note out of our file and we wrote, paid in full across it and sent it to them in the mail. Well, they were expecting at the time a child that they were not planning on, their third. 
And about three months later, little Molly was born. And Molly has Down syndrome. God knew that. And he knew that they needed the burden of that debt off their shoulders. We were pretty slow in wanting to share the, uh, the generosity story. But after that jog, we knew we needed to do it. So we hosted two jogs, and now we've facilitated a couple. And we get the joy of seeing hearts changed at those events. It's so exciting to see when people get the bug. Well, this has been a 20-year journey for us. This hasn't been a revelation. It hasn't been an overnight experience. It's been God working in our hearts for the last 20 years. And we certainly don't want to leave you with the impression that we got this all together and have it all figured out. Um, we continually fight this battle of grabbing onto it and having to have God pry our fingers loose and then grabbing onto it again. We keep trying to listen to him and obey, but we also wonder how much we miss because we don't have it all together on this. We're still walking on this journey. And we know that you're on a journey too, and we just don't know what stage of that journey you're on. You may be just beginning, or you may be way beyond where we are. But we hope that maybe something we've shared might have been an encouragement to you that might spur you on, as Todd said, that as you look at your journey, that you can try and figure out where you are and what God's saying to you. And I want to close with this scripture and a, and, and a story. The scripture is from 2 Corinthians 9, verses 10 through 13. It says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. There's some key phrases in there that I want you to think about as we read this letter. Generosity will result in thanksgiving to God, supplying the needs of God's people, expressions of thanks to God, and men will praise God. This is a letter that was left in our guest book in our home in Florida from a couple that we had never met. And they wrote, Dear Bruce and Sue, Carla and I spent a lot of time pondering and discussing this week. What sort of people open their home to a long line of visitors, some whom they have never met? And what sort of faith does it require to release the valuable material things you have worked so hard for and expose them to either appreciative or destructive people, trusting that God will be glorified in either case? 
We only know that the God whom prompts such generosity is the same God who changed the whole world with his radical love and liberating message. We have been overwhelmed by your radical faith and kindness. We have had an exhausting year and didn't realize how run down our batteries really were. We are leaving tomorrow morning so refreshed, rested, and rejuvenated. We are almost giddy. The blessing extends to many others in our world who depend upon us to be providers and encouragers. They would thank you too. We wept tears of joy when we read that letter, and it's still hard to read it without tears flowing. Because you see, when we do this generosity thing right, God gets the glory. But the neat thing is that he allows us to experience the joy. So may God bless you in your giving and bring you great joy. Thank you.